is everyone? Swell. Awesome. Um, um, cool. Everyone had a good day? Yes. Cool. Awesome. I've seen you a couple times today, man, so I'm glad that things are continuing to go well. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Cool. Well, um, I know it's been, uh, it's been a busy, uh, probably a busy couple weeks for a lot of you guys. I know it's been a busy couple weeks for me. Um, and so I'm glad you guys are here, uh, even though um, you have other things that you could be doing. You chose to be here, and so that's awesome. I'm glad you guys are. Um, Andrew is not here tonight, um, and okay, so I'll tell you the story. So Andrew is not here because if you were here last week, um, we talked about how he and Chris, uh, the student pastor at Ruval Road, are uh, in Honduras doing uh, pastoral training. So they had been with a group of pastors in um, San Pedro, uh, I guess. Is that where they were? Or La Esperanza? La Esperanza, probably. Um, teaching a, a group of pastors there. And then today, I talked to Andrew, and they were going to Roatan uh, to teach a second group there. So uh, they come back Saturday. So you guys continue to pray for, uh, for them while they're away. Um, and so because I knew that uh, Andrew was going to be gone, um, usually, uh, I'll try to get Neil to come, right? Some of you guys have met Pastor Neil. He is the pastor of, uh, uh, he was my pastor for a lot of years, my mentor. Uh, he discipled me when I was, um, a lot of, a lot of your guys' age and, um, still does. And he is the pastor of the sending church that I pastor now here at BCM, Christ the King. Um, and we talk all the time and he was supposed to come. That was my hope that he would be here. And then his son broke his elbow. And so, um, yeah, thanks a lot. So, um, yeah, poor, poor Bennett. Yeah, but poor us more than that even because we don't get to like experience all the benefits of Neil being here. So when Neil listens to this later, um, we can say, hey, man, we wish you were here. Thanks a lot, Bennett. So no, but he had he had surgery today uh, and they put a pin in his elbow. Um, Neil sent me a picture earlier and uh, I was someplace that I really didn't want to be. So I responded by saying I would rather be in that bed with a broken elbow right now than where I am. So I wish that we could trade places. But we can't, and now I'm glad I'm here with you guys. So, um, yeah, that's where we are, and that's what's been going on with my day, and you guys probably don't care, but there you go. That's what we've been working with. So, um, tonight we are going to be in Acts um, uh, Acts chapter 16. Sorry, I had to think for a moment. We're going to be in Acts chapter 16. We're finishing up uh, chapter 16 tonight. Uh, we're kind of, we've been audibling the past like two weeks trying to figure out why in the world we structured certain things the way that we did. And so kind of looking back today and making sure, hey, this is where we're going to be. And it is. This is where we're going to be finishing up chapter 
16 tonight. Um, as you guys know, we try to uh, equip you guys with um, with resources that you can use to start putting together a good library. Um, I've told you before, I know we give you guys a lot of books and things, and you're like, I can never afford these things on my own. But as I have often encouraged, throw a couple of these guys on your Christmas list or your birthday list to mom and dad, and they will go over the moon. They'll be so pumped that you're asking for books. So um, major points with mom and dad if you're asking for books for uh, holidays and for gifts. So um, tonight I'm referencing something, I'm recommending something that we have recommended before. Um, I'm going to uh, tonight utilize this reference a little bit to show you guys some ways that you can take advantage of resources like this. So this is, um, it's the Zondervan uh, Study Bible, Um, the personal size, right? Wow curls all day long as you hit the scriptures, right? Um, And it is uh, edited by a guy named D.A. Carson. Uh, It's legit. I love it. Um, It's one of those uh, resources that's always on my desk. Um, And so every week as we are at Christ the King working our way through the Gospel of Mark, I'm always at some point going and checking out the notes um, for the Zondervan Study Bible uh, just to kind of kind of touch base and see what's going on. So um, we're going to tonight uh, utilize a couple of the notes, right? How do you utilize a study Bible? What are right ways to use it? Um, what, of, of what benefit are all these notes down here at the bottom? Um, I think that's something that might be helpful is to say, okay, we're going to reference a couple of notes and see what it has to say and how uh, it helps us to understand certain things about the passage. There were some really cool points that I thought were brought up in the notes about some of the language, uh, some of the uh, interpretations, and some of the translation that we see uh, in tonight's passage, and how it really causes a lot of what we see happening within our passage tonight to uh, expand, to, to, to blossom, to be much bigger maybe than we initially thought that it would be upon first reading. So that's what we're going to do. Everybody cool with that? Too bad. We're doing it anyway. So... Um, I asked Jacqueline if she would read for us tonight because you guys are about to hear enough of me. And so we'll let Jacqueline's sweet voice read the uh, read our passage. So we are in um, we are in Acts chapter 16. We're going to be reading uh, verses 16 through um, through 40, uh, I believe. Yes. Um Hey, before we do, were you here last week, Jacqueline? Uh-uh. No, dogs no. needed out last week. So um, why doesn't somebody help us out quickly? You stand there awkwardly now while we um, ask the group to bring up some points from last week. What are some things if you were here last week that we observed? Because we're really, we're, we're, where we kind of finished our time last week, the conversion of Lydia and her family, that's a really important point to remember as we go into tonight's passage. So what are some things that we saw? What are some points that we made, some observations that we brought up uh, last week for those of you who were here? Paul took Timothy with him. Yeah. Yep. What else? Yeah, yeah, right. We looked at, uh, I guess it's uh, verse 14 of Acts chapter 16, uh, Paul's conversation with Lydia, and it says that the Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. Um, And so we see regeneration within the heart of Lydia 
who it's important to remember who she is and what she does that for all uh, intents and purposes, for all practical purposes, she uh, seems to be a, a fairly well-to-do businesswoman right there in Philippi. And so um, that's important as we're going to see um, the church growing, the local church, the global church and the local church growing tonight in Acts chapter 16. Um, and it's going to be a really diverse group. So let's remember who Lydia is. But we see that her heart is made alive. Um, she is uh, she is uh you know, uh, professing faith and then following in, uh, in following out obedience as she is, uh, baptized her and her entire household. Um, and then she invites the, invites the boys to come and stay with her, uh, for a couple of days and they do. And that's kind of where we come into tonight's passage. So the Lord's work in Philippi, the establishing of a very diverse local church that is going to be very near and dear to the heart of Paul. Um, if you've ever read the book of Philippians, anybody familiar with the book of Philippians, right? This is uh, this is a, a group of people that are being written to by Paul um, in the letter to the Philippians, right? So um, this is a church that Paul loves. Anybody know anything unique about Philippians? This is kind of a side note. Um, there's something unique about Philippians that it distinguishes itself from all of other all of, of Paul's other letters. Bible trivia. Any idea? Uh, the book of Philippians is, uh, I believe, I believe it's, the letter that Paul writes where there isn't really a major issue that he is addressing with the fellowship there. Um, and so uh, it's, a, it's a very encouraging letter. Um, it, it, there is, if I remember correctly, there's no real, um, you know, there's no real problem that he is addressing, but he just writes to thank them and to encourage them. Um, it's, a really, it's a really neat thing. So uh, Paul loves this church, and part of that is uh, as a result of everything that we see happening in Acts chapter 16 as the church is planted. So we feel good now? Everybody caught up? I feel good. Jacqueline, why don't you read for us and then maybe pray? Sure. Cool. Verse 16. As we were going to the place of prayer, we were met by a slave girl who had a spirit of divination and brought her owners much gain by fortune telling. She followed Paul and, and us, crying out, these men are servants of the Most High God, who proclaim to you the way of salvation. And this she kept doing for many days. Paul, having become greatly annoyed, turned and said to the Spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And it came out that very hour. But when her owners saw that their hope of gain was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace before the rulers. And when they had brought them to the magistrates, they said, these men are Jews, and they are disturbing our city. They advocate customs that are not lawful for us as Romans to accept or practice. The crowd joined in attacking them, and the magistrates tore their garments off, off them and gave orders to beat them with rods. And when they had inflicted many blows upon them, they drew him into prison, ordering the jailer to keep them safely. Having received this order, he put them into the inner prison and fastened their feet in the stocks. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God. The prisoners were listening to them, and suddenly there was a great earthquake, so that the foundations of the prison were shaken. 
And immediately all the doors were opened, and everyone's bonds were unfastened. When the jailer woke and saw that the prison doors were open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself, supposing that the prisoners had escaped. But Paul cried out with a loud voice, Do not harm yourself, for our, for we are all here. And the jailer called for lights and rushed in, and trembling with fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas. Then he brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they said, Believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved, you and your household. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in his house. And he took them the same hour of the night and washed their wounds, and he was baptized at once, he and all his family. Then he brought them up into his house and set, foot, and set food before them. And he rejoiced along with his entire household that he had believed in God. But when it was, a day, but when it was day, the magistrates went or sent the police, saying, Let those men go. And the jailer reported these words to Paul, saying, The magistrates have sent to let you go. Therefore, come out now and go in peace. But Paul said to them, They have beaten us publicly, uncondemned, men who are Roman citizens and have thrown us into prison. And do they not throw us out secretly? No, let them come themselves and take us out. The police reported these words to the magistrates, and they were afraid when they heard that they were Roman citizens. So they came and apologized to them, and they took them out and asked them to leave the city. So they went out of the prison and visited Lydia, and when they had seen the brothers, they encouraged them and departed. God, thank you for tonight. Um, I thank you, Lord, for your word and all that it teaches us. I pray for your spirit to open our eyes and open our hearts to um, apply it appropriately to our lives, God, that we would um, be transformed by your word tonight. And I pray this in Christ's name. Amen. 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 Thanks, Jacqueline. Um, so there's a lot going on, right, in this passage, and we're going to kind of take it step by step, uh, beginning by uh, with looking at um, Paul's uh, casting out of the demon who is oppressing this girl. Um, the response of those who have been lording power over her and um, taking advantage of her for their own personal gain, and then um, the after effects for uh, Paul and Silas. That's kind of the first part. Um, so if we were to think about what we're going to see through the first portion of this passage, it looks like initially that there is a Yet again, a major disruption to the work of the Lord um, through Paul and Silas on this particular missionary journey, right? We're coming out of um, the conversion of Lydia, right? A really incredible account in which we see first Lydia um, converted and then we see her household follow suit, right? We see the Lord do this incredible work here in Philippi as he opens and softens hearts and then in turn, as we've already referenced, um, leads them into a path of obedience, right? A regenerate heart results in what? Obedience to the Lord. That's really clear here as it relates specifically to the ordinance of baptism, right? So if you're going to make a case for baptism and um, it's uh, its role and its part in the Christian life, here we see kind of what that looks like, that it is a display of obedience, Um 
to to the Lord, right? Um, we see that displayed by Lydia, and so it looks like the ball is is really rolling, right, in a solid direction. Things are going really well, and then it looks like there is this major interruption, right? This disruption that results in Paul and Silas being what imprisoned, right? Um, but what we find through the second portion of the story is that it's not a disruption, but in fact, it is a um, a circumstance, a moment that gives way to a continued work of the Lord as he establishes this local church here in Philippi. Does that make sense? Awesome. Let's go back and let's kind of work through this thing. And then I want us to make note of a few uh, a few verses that I think are really, really cool. A couple of notes. How do we utilize a study Bible and its notes? Here we go. We're going to practice some of these things. Look at verse 16. Um, as we were going to the place of prayer, we were met by a slave girl who had a spirit of divination uh, and brought her owners much gain by fortune telling. And so she has this, uh, this spirit, right, that that um, is oppressing her. Um, she is enslaved by um, we don't really we don't really know uh, who or how many. We know she has owners, and uh, that as she tells fortunes as a result of the oppression that this spirit has over her, um, that. These guys, these handful of guys who who are her owners, they're identified that way. They make a profit off of her, right? Do we get that, right? There's these, there's a, a group of guys who are profiting off the misfortune and um, the, the 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 trouble and the oppression of this uh, slave girl. Verse seventeen, she followed Paul. Uh, and us crying out, these men are servants of the most high God who proclaim to you the way of salvation. And so we get a little bit of insight into what Paul and Silas are there doing, right? Uh, along with Timothy, what are they there doing? What are they proclaiming? What does it say there in verse, uh, in verse 17? Yeah, the way of salvation, right? The way of salvation, verse 18. Uh, and this she kept doing for many days. Okay, this is, uh, this is the, the creaky door hinge, right, that eventually really gets on, really gets on Paul's nerves, okay? Um, and so what does Paul do in uh, response? Ha- Paul, having become, what, greatly annoyed, turned and said to the spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And it came out that very hour. And so there's some really, there's a lot of repetition that we see within this passage that help inform our understanding of what's taking place and um, all of the different ways uh, and the different people that are being affected by what Paul does here. Listen to this study note. Um, again, this is from our resource for the night. It is Honorable Study Bible. Um, this is on verses 17 through 19. We see a couple of words repeated, a couple of ideas repeated, right? There's this, this come out idea, right? Um, Paul's instruction uh, to the oppressive spirit to what? To come out of the girl, Right? Um, so we've got that. Then you've got uh, the result. What happened? The the spirit, what her? What does it say in the passage? Yeah, it left her, right? Do we see uh, the left? Paul, I'm become great. I command you in the name of the Lord Jesus to come out of her. And it came out. It left her um, that very hour. And it was gone, right? 
And so you've got like three different things that are going on here. Listen to this note. I thought this was super helpful. This is why study Bibles are and can be utilized in a really awesome and effective way to help us understand more clearly a particular passage. Listen to what, uh, listen to what the, the commentators have to say. All three verbs, come out, left, was gone, reflect one Greek word. Okay, and so we see, um, we see three words being used Three verbs that reflect one Greek word, okay? And he goes on to explain what that is. Luke makes uh, a play on words by repeating the same word to describe both the demon and the owner's hope of profit as departing. And so we've got uh, us, like some owners of this girl, right? And they have been um, they've been lording over her. They've been using her. They've been taking advantage of her. For what purpose? To what end? Well, financial end, right? Financial gain. They've been padding their own pockets as a result of this girl's misfortune. They've been using her. They've been abusing her. They've been taking advantage of her. And as Paul here casts this uh, oppressive spirit out, right? We see Luke recording that with the use of three verbs and in using the same word to describe three different things, he talks about the demon leaving the girl. So that's the first part is that the girl is set free from the spirit that was within her, right? And so let's let's just kind of rest on that for a second that you've got a girl who has been feeling the effects of, uh, of an oppressive spirit, and now she is liberated. She's set free. Okay, so that's the first part. The spirit was gone, right? Uh, it left her. Now, the second part relates to uh, the consequences for what ultimately um, God has done in setting her free through Paul from the spirit. And that is this, that those who have been benefiting from her misfortune are seeing their prophets leave. <laughs> okay. That's why we, he says he's using a play on words here that he, he talks of it three times, uh, in verse 17. Um, uh, no, uh, yeah. Is it verse 17? Most high God who proclaimed. No, it's uh, I command you, verse 18, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And he, it came out that very hour. Verse 19, but when her owner saw that their hope of gain was what? Gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged uh, them into the marketplace before the rulers. All of that is the same idea. It's the same word that's being communicated, only we see multiple people being affected. One in a positive way, right? Who's reaping the benefits of what's taking place in this passage? The girl, right? Yeah, you've got this slave girl whose life is on the serious up and up now, right? But you've also got another group that has been affected in a, uh, a, a negative way, right? They're feeling uh, the other side of the coin, right? From her reaping the positive benefits, you've got her owners who are now experiencing um, the consequences or the negative uh, or the repercussions, maybe. I guess you don't have negative benefits, do you, right? It would be the repercussions um, of her being set free, 
They made money. This was a source of income for them in the past. And now that income is gone, right? It's gone. They don't have that available anymore. And so this leads us into their, it helps them inform their response, right? It helps us to understand how they respond. Let's look there at verse, um, at the end of verse 19. Let's just read verse 19. But when our owners saw that their hope of gain was gone, what do they do? Seize Paul. And Silas, and they dragged them into the marketplace before the rulers. And when they had brought them to the magistrates, they said, These men are Jews, and they are uh, disturbing our city. They're disturbing our city. They're causing a ruckus, right? They're, they're bringing about chaos and disruption, and the magistrates are not fans of this type of behavior. Why? What are magistrates entrusted to do? Keep the peace, right? Magistrates are to keep everything in order, to keep the peace. And so when you bring a charge before the magistrates like these Jews are causing a disruption here in the city, um, what we see follow makes perfect sense. Now, they do neglect to say that Paul is actually also like a Roman citizen. And so what we see taking place here is a grave injustice. And that will be made more clear as we continue on through the book of Acts to the point that we see later on Paul demand to be taken to Caesar, right, the Romans' right because of the way that he is being treated. And so that there, there is that portion of what we see um, going on here. Verse 21, they advocate customs that are not lawful for us as Romans to accept or practice. And so, verse 22, the crowd joins in attacking them. And the magistrates tore the garments off of them and gave orders to beat them with rods. And when they had inflicted many blows upon them, they threw them into prison, ordering the jailer to keep them safely. Having received this order, he put them into the inner prison and fastened their feet in the stocks. And so... Um, Man, what a turn of events, right? You've got what for all practical purposes seems to be a really good, incredible thing that this, that this girl has been set free. And these scallywags have been judged, right? Like their source of income has been disrupted. These are obviously not solid guys. These are not cool guys. And, um, and their, uh, their, their profit flow has been interrupted, right? And it seems like this is a great thing. Only the magistrates respond by having them beaten with rods and then thrown in prison. And so you would think, let's just imagine this. Let's, give it, let's describe this in a word. How about this? Injustice. Right? This would seem to be, if we were to think about words that might define, describe, help us to understand better what's going on here, I think we could probably get on board with injustice, right? This doesn't seem fair. This doesn't seem right. This seems to be unjust. This seems to be um, the opposite of something good. This seems to be a negative response to something positive that has taken place. Can we get on board with that? That's important. Why? Well, because we're about to see their response to injustice. What is the Christian response to um, persecution and trial and um, pain and suffering and difficulty and things that are not fair? What is the Christian response? I feel like the book of Acts is constantly challenging us um, on this point. Is it not? 
right? Our, our, our understanding of right response to injustice being placed upon us is informed through the book of Acts, okay? And we get it yet again. Um, we get it yet again tonight, and I'm going to read another another point here in just a minute from verse 25. Their response, verse 25, about midnight, Paul and Silas were what? Well, they were angry, and they were cursing, and they were spitting, and they were throwing their hands in the air, and they were saying, why, God, why? Why has this happened to us, Right? No, that's not what it says at all, right? That's not what they, that's not how they respond. That's how we might respond sometimes. That's my, how we might think we uh, would respond or how they would respond, but they don't respond that way at all. It says at midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns. And so they were praying, which maybe we can even get on board with that. Lord, free us, like set us free, like do something miraculous, do something amazing and bring about our freedom and judge our enemies already, right? These, uh, these bums who have thrown us into prison and beat us with rods, extremely uncomfortable, right? Um, so that might even make sense. But the singing hymns part is really counter natural, isn't it? Um, Praying and singing hymns to God. And the prisoners were listening to them. And so here's where we start to see our um, understanding of this passage take a major shift, right? If we said, if we just read verses 16 through 24, we could say, okay, their work has been disrupted. Um, that oftentimes uh, righteous works and living mission results in persecution and trial and maybe even imprisonment. We could stop there, right? All right. But if we stop there, what happens? Well, we miss the Christian response to said difficulty, which we see presented in verse 25. We see that Paul and Silas at this point, are not viewing what is taking place to them as a major interruption. In fact, it doesn't seem to indicate that they are dwelling at all on what's taking place to them, but that they are so focused on the Lord and his goodness and his grace and his mercy and his plan and his purpose and his provision that they sing hymns to him, right? That they're praying and they're singing hymns. And just in case... Um, just in case we might have missed it, they're in the stocks. They're not in the most comfortable of situations and circumstances. I want to read another note from verse 25 from our resource for the night. Resources help us to understand the scriptures a, a little bit more. And here's a great example of that. Paul and Silas illustrate Christian joy and peace in the midst of suffering. Christian joy... And peace in the midst of suffering. It's not simply that they have joy, but I think that we can say confidently that they also have a peace. That peace and joy oftentimes accompany one another, right? I'm sure you've heard it said before, I know I have, that when we talk about joy, in this case Christian joy, we're talking about uh, a feeling, an emotion, a reality that supersedes happiness, Right? When we talk about happiness, is anybody happy for being thrown in prison? Well, like, probably not, right? 
um, you're probably that's probably not that probably does not produce like happiness. Uh, earlier this evening, we watched Atlanta United absolutely dismantle the LA Galaxy, and that made me happy. <laughs> right? Like, and if you're an Atlanta United supporter, that makes that makes you happy to know that 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 has taken place, and now happiness has been produced. Right? If they lose. If you're an LA Galaxy supporter and you watched this this absolute drubbing that Atlanta United put on you tonight, you are not happy, right? And so we understand happiness, how it fluctuates, right? How it goes up and it goes down. But what we see from this is that we're talking about something that supersedes happiness. That we're talking about something that is that is rooted um on and established in something that is much, much greater than fleeting happiness. We're talking about joy, joy that produces peace um, in the midst of suffering. Uh, Here we see these missionaries sing and praise God in the midst of the persecution that they are that they are experiencing. And so how does this inform the Christian response to difficulty? Well, it says this, that our response has to be rooted in something deeper than our circumstance, right? The Christian response to difficulties in this world has to be rooted in something stronger than our circumstance. Because what do we know about our circumstances? They change, right? Like our circumstances change. They're, they're up and down. Um, you got, if you guys had awesome stellar days today, cool. But like what about tomorrow? <laughs> well, it may not be so awesome and so stellar. If you had bad days today, what do we know about tomorrow? Well, that there's, there's hope for a better, right? That tomorrow could be better than today. Our circumstances change, right? We get A's and then we get C's, right? Um, they change. And, and so what do we learn from passages like this? That, that Christian joy is rooted in something that is, that is more eternal than our circumstance. It's more fixed. It doesn't fade, but it remains uh, forever. Here, said joy is rooted in Christ, right? It's, it's rooted in Christ. It's rooted in who he is and what and what he has done, right? The truth and the hope of the gospel. So no matter what the circumstance is, um, because Christ is enthroned on high, right? Then the Christian, no matter what the circumstance is, no matter what the circumstance dictates, can be joyful. Now that's a supernatural response, right? Like what we're seeing here is truly a supernatural response. It's not something that we produce apart from the work of the spirit in our lives. Okay. And so if you are here and you hear, okay, uh, yeah, have supernatural joy and you don't have the spirit of God dwelling within you, then what you are being challenged towards here is an impossibility and it will frustrate you, right? Um, it'll frustrate you because you can't produce it. You can't make it happen. It will, it will flee. It will fade. It will feel, um, like something that it does not bring comfort, but instead brings despair because you're confronted with your inability. Does that make sense? Are we good so far? Do we get that? 
that Christian joy is rooted in something, something deeper, something stronger than circumstance. And so where do we find our joy? Is it in our freedom, right? Is it in our um, ability to walk the streets and to know that we are safe, right? And that we're here for a particular work and that we can accomplish that. Is that where our freedom is found? No, it's not. What's so ironic here is that we see, we see a girl who is essentially a prisoner within her own body, right? Like she is imprisoned. She is a servant to these wicked owners, and she is a slave um, to the spirit that is at work within her, right? She is set free, okay? As a result, we see Paul and Silas imprisoned. Only their feelings aren't dictated. Their emotions aren't dictated by their imprisonment the same way that this girl's feelings and emotions would have been dictated, right? Does that make sense? One is set free, joy, right? The other is imprisoned, joy remains, right? Isn't that incredible? Like that's what the gospel does. Like that's what Christ does in his people. We see, we see that it is, is not dictated. This joy is not dictated by, uh, by circumstance. We've got to continue. Um, we're, (laughs) I'm going to have to tell Andrew, we didn't get done with the passage and he's going to come back and yell at me. And so we've got to finish. Okay. He does that. He yells at me when I don't finish the passages. Uh, verse 26. I'm just kidding. He doesn't, he doesn't do that. Um, (laughs) verse 26, they're singing, they're praising, they're praising the Lord. Verse 26. And suddenly there was a great earthquake. So that the foundations of the prison were shaken. And immediately all the doors were opened and everybody's bonds were unfashioned. Now, this is an event that would um, produce within us imprisoned, shackled, right, unjustly, having been treated so horribly, it would produce joy within us, right? The prison doors fling open and what happens to the imprisoned? Joy, we're free. Like this is cause for joy. Only we saw the joy supersede the circumstance, didn't we? Paul and Silas are perfectly comfortable in prison, right? They're they're at peace. They have joy, and then they're set free. So it just it continues to affirm the point that we kind of see being made through the first portion of this this passage. They're set free, but that being set free does not produce joy within them because they've already been set free, right? Like they've already been set free in Christ. And so there's joy regardless of what of what the circumstance uh, of what the circumstance is. Verse 27. The jailer wakes up and he sees that the prison doors were open. Oh no. <laughs> right? Oh, snap. The response of the jailer is he opens up and sees that all of the jail cell doors are uh, are open. And so what does he do, man? He draws the sword and he is about to kill himself, supposing that the prisoners had escaped. This is the guy. This is a guy who, um, man, he would find himself in something that could be described beyond an incredibly precarious situation, um, going to his superiors and letting them know, Hey, uh, while I was sleeping, everyone escaped. Okay. Major prison guard fail. 
right here. And as a result, he would have been punished um, and perhaps killed as a result of, in fact, probably killed. Many commentators would say, you know, man, because there were, we don't know who all else was in prison, but um, if there was anyone in there who was awaiting execution and they escaped, dude, you are taking their place, right? You are, somebody's getting killed here, right? Um, and because the prisoner escaped, man, here you go. Like you, you fill their place, which again, man, the biblical theology there is incredible, right? Some, there is justice. Somebody is going to pay. Um, and because the prisoner escaped, it will be you. Now I want us to think about how that relates to the gospel, right? Because this is beautiful. The gospel says that we are uh, worthy of the righteous and just punishment of the Lord, right? Because we are sinners, right? We have rebelled um, from the Lord, that we have failed to love God. We have failed to love our neighbor. And as a result of our sin, that we are to be objects of wrath and punishment and justice from a holy God, right? This is the reality. This is the human condition. This is our plight. This is our trouble, only Jesus has taken our place. Okay, so that the cell doors have been opened. We are set free and Christ takes our place absorbing the punishment that we are. Des- hey, God is just. Somebody's paying, right? Because God is holy and he is just and he is merciful, but that has got to be poured out somewhere. Someone has to pay. And so here we see a jailer who knows, man, I'm going before I'm going before my superiors and somebody's gotta pay for this this thing, right? Somebody's gotta pay for this. Because that's what justice looks like. And so he draws his sword to kill himself. And then we see an interruption. We see an interruption. Let's let's continue on through. Paul, verse 28, cried out with a loud voice. Do not harm yourself, for we are all here. And the jailer called for lights and rushed in, and trembling with fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas. Then he brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? Now, what type of salvation is this guy talking about here? Is he talking about a physical salvation? Like being saved, like not being killed? No, right? He's not because he was about to be, he was about to kill himself and then that was interrupted. And so he runs in and he takes them out and he says, now what must I do to be saved? We're not talking about a sparing of life here because his life has already been spared. We're talking about something much deeper. We're talking about something much greater here, right? That perhaps he has begun to um, consider as a result of the praying and sing, singing of hymns that's taken place through the imprisonment of Paul and Silas. Verse 31, and they said to him, so what, is, what does salvation require? That's a big question, right? Um, as you, as a Christian, continue to faithfully uh, and obediently live mission on this campus, 
right? Speaking the gospel into the lives of those that you encounter. The question that one comes to is this, what must I do to be saved, right? And his answer is perfect. It's perfect. Believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. You and your household, anyone who believes, right, on the Lord Jesus will be saved. Listen to what our study note says from our resource tonight. This is the simple yet profound answer to the desperate cry of the repentant sinner. And so here's one thing that we might hear from this passage. What do, what is required for salvation? Well, repentance and belief. Well, here, Paul doesn't say repent and believe, does he? He says believe. Why? Well, because it, it would seem as though repentance is implied through the cry of the jailer, right? Like there's this obvious, uh, there's this recognition of repentance. It would appear from Paul. And so what does he say? Man, you are clearly turning from death. And so now the call is to believe on Christ, to believe on Christ. Uh, the, the, uh, the, content, the content of which is Jesus Christ, the note continues on. The content of which is Jesus Christ. And so, man, turn from your sin. That's, that's displayed through his behavior, through his posture, and, uh, and believe. Believe on Jesus. Now, there's a load of things that we can go into here, right? Um, who is the Jesus that we are to believe on? Well, it's the the Jesus of the scriptures, right? Um, That's big. That's a huge point, right? Because um, there are various uh, religious systems that would say, yeah, believe in Jesus. Only the Jesus that they are believing in is a vastly different Jesus than the Jesus that we see in the New Testament that is – uh, foretold of and pointed towards through the Old Testament, right? And so who is this Jesus? Well, we've been hearing a lot through the book of Acts about who this Jesus, uh, who this Jesus is. Belief in the biblical Jesus is, um, is the only Jesus and the only type of belief that brings about true reconciliation with God. That's a huge point, okay? Belief in the biblical Jesus is the only Jesus who will bring about true reconciliation with God. And so um, are we talking the same Jesus that perhaps Jehovah's Witnesses or Mormons would speak of? No, those are, those are different people. Those are, diff- that's, those are different Jesuses, okay? And so belief in this Jesus, the Jesus of the New Testament, is the one who brings about, as the jailer asks, salvation. Let's continue on. Verse 32. And they spoke uh, the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in his house. And he took them the same hour of the night and he washed their wounds. And so we see this service, right? This service that is immediately produced. The same guys that he had been watching over who had been flogged with reeds, okay, just like earlier, he is now cleaning their their wounds, the Christian life of service, right? We're going to be talking about this on Sunday in Mark chapter 9, right? Um, uh, The Christian life is marked by repentance, belief, and service. We see it all here in Mark chapter 16. And what? Obedience to the ordinance of baptism. And he was baptized at once, he and all his family. 
Then he brought them up into his house and he set food before them and he rejoiced along with his entire household uh, that he had believed in God. Um, we're running quickly out of time. And so what do we see happen in verses, we're going back to last week, in verses 11, the conversion of Lydia through the, um, what would you say, the deliverance of the slave girl and now the conversion of the jailer. What do we see happening here? What is this? We've already referenced it. What do we see in Acts chapter 16? Think about the book of Philippians. We see the beginnings of the church in Philippi. Okay, this is this is the this is the first the first fellowship. These are the first members of this uh, of this church here in in Philippi, this Christian church, um, and it is a diverse bunch to say the least. Right? The church is made up of who? Well, a rich businesswoman who deals in. Purple clothes, right? Purple fabric. A slave girl who is freed from an oppressive spirit. And a jailer and all his folks, right? Um, Who have believed. So you've got like what you would call like white collar, blue collar, and then like the downtrodden and oppressed, right? All making up the church in Philippi. This is awesome. I love this. Right. This is what the fellowship of the Lord looks like. This is what the body of Christ looks like. Um, There's equal need uh, for all of the different groups represented in this passage tonight. There's equal ability from the Lord. Right. To um, to bring down and to lift up. Right. Um, And then to knit their hearts all together in common love, this common bond for the Lord. These guys are all going to make up the same fellowship. They come from vastly different places and backgrounds, and yet there is this commonality that supersedes all of their differences. And what is that? It's the gospel, right? It's Christ. And so think about how that informs our involvement and our care and our connection within our own local fellowships, our local churches, right? I was for seven years um, on staff at a church with um, with Neil at Glenlock. And man, what a diverse fellowship, okay? Um, there were farmers and there were businessmen and there were college students and there were hipsters and there, I mean, it was like, it was, there was all over the spectrum. And then when you come together on a Sunday morning and you're an outsider and you come in and you go, my goodness, what? Like, this is like the zoo, right? Like, this is like, we've got like all different kinds of, of people here, right? Like we've got fish and birds and reptiles and like bears and like, it's all over the spectrum, right? How, what in the world can bring this group of people together? Well, the gospel does, right? The gospel does that. Like Christ does that so that you can rub elbows, right, with someone who is like literally like fluffing hay the same afternoon that you're like sitting in like psych class at West Georgia. And you can love one another, right? You can love one another and you can serve one another. Um, you can encourage one another, right? Um, all because of Christ, 
It's incredible. It's the most diverse group of people. The church ought to be the most diverse group of people in a city, in a community, right? Um, because there is, there is nothing else, right, that can get a group of people together like that uh, and concentrate our, our worship and our energy and our focus in the same direction like Jesus can. It's really remarkable, right? Um, yeah, it's incredible. Um, and so let's uh, let's look at the last part of our of our of our passage for the night. Uh, but when it was day, the magistrate sent the police saying, "Let the let those men go." Uh, and the jailer reported these words to Paul, saying, "The magistrates have sent." Uh, to let you go. Therefore, come out now and go in peace. But Paul said to them, they have beaten us publicly, uncondemned men who are, here we go, Roman citizens and have thrown us into prison. And do they now throw us out secretly? Here's what Paul says here, in essence. Um, No. These guys are not going to get away with this. Like this is, this has been a, a great display of injustice and um, the, the body of Christ, they are not committed to stirring up, um, like problems and trouble in the communities that they go through. This was not their fault. And so Paul is saying, no, like there is something that is on the line here and it is, um, essentially like our integrity, right. And our commitment to the Christian mission. And so we're not going through communities and like, producing um, chaos and disruption within them. But this is a result of things that have been done by others. Let them uh, come themselves and take us out. Verse 38, the police reported uh, uh, these words to the magistrates and they were afraid when they heard that they were Roman citizens. Why? Well, because you don't behave that way to Roman citizens. Like you've, you've done something that is um, illegal. Like it's not legal. Like you've not treated them fairly. Verse 39. So they came and what did they do? Man, the tables turned big time in verse 39 and apologized to them. And they took them out and asked them to leave the city, probably very kindly given their previous behavior. Verse 40. So they went out of the prison and visited Lydia. Uh, and when they had seen the brothers, uh, they encouraged them and they departed. And so what do we – we conclude with what? Well, they're, they're continuing on their way and we're going to see them go now into Thessalonica as we begin chapter 17 next week. And so what are some things that we can say? What are some things that were emphasized through our time in the concluding verses of Acts chapter 16 tonight? Well, I think we probably said it about 15 times that our joy is not dictated by our circumstances, but it is instead rooted in who? Christ, right? And so let's be challenged. Let's explore that. Is my joy rooted in Christ or is it rooted in other things? Right? Is it rooted in Christ or is it rooted in other things? If it's rooted in Christ, we know that it isn't dictated. It's not shaken uh, by the circumstances of this life, right? In this world. But instead, it remains constant and fixed. Is it a struggle? Absolutely. Is it a supernatural work? Absolutely. Um, But we see that this is what the Spirit of God does within God's people. Um, We will face opposition, right? We will face opposition. We can know that. We can we can uh, anticipate that. But it doesn't change the mission, right? It doesn't change commitment. It doesn't change joy. 
um, because it doesn't change Jesus, right? It doesn't change who he is, and he's not caught off guard, and he continues to to do exactly what he said he was do, which which is advance his church. And so, yeah, let's close by just being confident in the Lord and saying, man, this is where our joy is found. Um, this is where our joy is found, come what may. It produces a, a, a call or a commitment to the Christian call and a desired obedience. As we see regenerate hearts produced, again, there is an obedience to the ordinances. And there is this service spirit that is produced within those who were previously watching guard over the imprisoned, right? It's a really incredible thing that the gospel does. And so let's remember that together as we close our time out tonight. Thank you.